0: Welcome to We Are History, my name is Johnny Farrell And I'm Angela Barnes And together we are history And this week... It's. Just Sorry John, to, that was to... too slick, I had to laugh,
1: that was oh, like you've been practising that. We are
0: history. Yeah, we've been we
1: doing it a while now, you've really got the intro slick and then I, I just come in and ruin it. I think okay, I'm yeah. going
0: a bit MTV, uh, together we are history, so it's pretty cool and we've got some great 80s bands coming up now. So uh, that,
1: that would explain why you've got your nose pierced John, I was wondering.
0: Well, not everyone can see that, um, <laughs> it just matches the, t- the the tear tats under my eyes. <laughs> It's Angela, as I was saying before I said rudely interrupted. Sorry. It. It's Angela Barnes's turn to choose a subject this week. And yeah. guess what, listeners? <laughs> She's gone with East Fucking Germany again. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know, John, if I had my way, every episode would be about, I don't about, know. I just, I I am a little bit not obsessed, just yeah. interested. I find it very fascinating.
0: It is fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's a sort of um a, a society that's sort of invented from scratch, really, out of the yeah. ruins of the Second World War. And this is part of that. She yeah. butted me up to let her do this episode, anyway, by buying me a Helder Arbeit notebook, Hero <laughs> of Labour, which I think is fair <laughs> comment, for my birthday. Um, so I felt obliged to let her do another East Germany one and agree to that. Uh, Thanks so, you, John. Angela, why don't you tell the, the good listener of We uh, Are History, uh, what, we're, what we're talking about today.
1: Well, this came out of, it is a bit timely because it was about, it was a book that came out last year, um, or this year actually, earlier this year, uh, which was by someone called Philip Alterman and he's written a book called Stasi Poetry Circle. And as usual, listeners, I recommend that you read it because we're not going to be able to cover anywhere near everything that's in the book and it's, it's a really good read. It's been really well-reviewed. Um, and it's a really interesting gallop through the history of the German Democratic Republic, that 40 years that that small state existed. Um, and it's got some really good human stories in it as well. So, uh, But it's sort of looking at it less from the political angle, more to attitudes to the cultural life of East Germany. Yes, um, yes. So that's what we're going to concentrate in this episode, I think, because, you know, John, I'm all about culture. Oh, I? you are.
0: You are all about culture and you know. that. Yeah. Germany, yeah. obviously, with its very rich and literary... Cultural history, Brecht, Goethe, Schiller, Kraftwerk, the Scorpions. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a straight <laughs> right. line. I love yeah, the way how right. we always, you know, our catchphrase for this podcast is, we read the books so you don't have to. And then we always go, you've got to read the book. But you've you got really, to read the it, books,
1: it's really yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, actually, we've had some people on Twitter going, oh, thanks, another great tip for my reading list. And people yeah. do, do read them because of this. So. So, Philip, if you're listening, we're not just ripping off your book and just telling everyone all about we do it. We don't want people to read it. We're telling people to read it, too. So you'll get several sales from this podcast. I
1: yes, at least three, I reckon. Well, two of them come from me because I bought myself a copy and I also bought a copy for Frank Skinner. There you go. Oh, really? That's I was doing because uh, Frank Skinner is very into poetry and um, he also is quite into uh, communist history. He talks about okay. that quite a lot. And I was uh, co-presenting his radio show with him. So I bought him a copy. I'm Virgin so, on Virgin Radio. Oh, no, on Absolute Radio. Absolute. Oh, sorry. Oh, dear. You get in oh, well. trouble. So, oh, um, so like there you go. Uh, yeah, I bought two copies, so I think we're allowed to talk about it. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, you've been, go, so, so so been co
0: hosting with other men?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was co hosting with other men before you came along, John. <laughs> oh, no well,
0: that's fine. I didn't realize that sort of open sort of podcast. <laughs> So, tell us about right, this blood. so. Anyway, should we get back blood. to the topic, yes, right? Yes. Oh, so, so
1: yes, Germans—they're known as the nation of Dichter und Denker, which means poets and thinkers. And that's East um, Germany as well, is it? Yeah. So, let's let's do a little bit of East Germany background here, shall we? I'm going to go back again, John. Oh, here we go. So, the, the landmass of East Germany came out of Pangaea. <laughs> it's just a little recap because we have talked about East Germany before. We've talked about it early on in our podcast in our nudism episode. Oh yes, that's uh, we one did of the very a,
0: first we did, I think.
1: One of the very first we did. Um, we sort of set the tone, didn't it? Yeah. It did. and, uh, <laughs> yes. So so just a little recap on what the East German Republic is. Um, so we go to the end of World War II. Uh, for those not listening at the back, this is what happened. Hitler's defeated. Oh, Germany's,
0: spoiler.
1: oh spoiler alert. Hitler's defeated by the Allies. <laughs> Germany's divided up between them into Western spheres of influence and Soviet spheres of influence. So Britain, the US and France take the West and the Soviet Union takes the East. And Berlin sits in the middle of the East of the country. So that itself is divided into East and West Berlin with the same division. So East Berlin uh, with the Soviet influence and West Berlin with the
0: Western influence. And nobody really knew at the time how this was all going to pan out, of course. And then uh, it wasn't until 1949 that the... No, they become separate countries, really. The West becomes the Federal Republic of Germany and the East becomes the German Democratic Republic or the GDR, as we'll call it in this episode.
1: That's right. And it's ruled by the Socialist Unity Party or the SED, the Socialistische Einheit. Oh, my God, I can speak German and I can't say it. You can. So on, give it another go. the Einheitspartei Deutschlands, um, which is a merger of, it's the German Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party of Germany. And it's obviously a Marxist-Leninist party. And it's also like, East Germany sort of governed by this so-called coalition of parties. You've got the Christian Democratic yeah. Union in there as well. You've got the liberals in there, but obviously it wasn't. <laughs> it yeah. was, they had free and fair elections, but they were re-elected every five years in a very non-free and non-secret vote. So right. th- they tried to give this impression that there were different parties, but they all belonged to what they call the National Front, and it was all led by the SED.
0: So what does the SED stand for again? Don't make <laughs> me say it
1: again. So
0: the Einheits-
1: Einheitspartei Deutschlands. I don't know why I'm struggling to say it. My
0: German is oh, Because pretty it's a good. very long word. I couldn't say that.
1: It, I, it just means Socialist Unity Party. That's what it means. Okay.
0: So the, the state sort of believed it had overcome the distinction between private and working life. So yeah. your company provided you with your leisure activities, your holidays. When we say company, your state, the state really. The state your, did. Yeah. By,
1: yeah so the, your you know manufacturer, whatever is owned by the state and the place where you work is also the place where you would have your leisure activities. Every workplace had what they called a culture house which was where, you know, parties and sports and whatever would take place. And you went on holidays with your work colleagues, which, no offence, John, sounds bloody
0: awful. Um, right. I, I, I consider you more of a friend than a work colleague. Yeah. <laughs> Most... Oh, shit, do you? Oh, yeah, that's cause we make, Only because we, we make no money out of this.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, a bit before we get into that, uh, like we said way back in our Agent Sonia episode, uh, when you talk about uh, history, obviously you have the benefit of hindsight. You look at it with the knowledge of how it pans out. But yeah. at the beginning of the GDR, there was sort of a there was genuine hope and for the future. And It wasn't. They really thought they were creating a socialist utopia under the communists uh, that mm. they'd been dreaming about. It was a. It was like a golden chance for people that had opposed the fascists under Hitler.
1: That's right. You In 1949, Germany's come through what they think is the worst part of its history. And in 1948, 49, lots of the people that have been exiled during that period begin to return. And among them are these German communists that have fled. And many of them were also Jewish, many of them intellectuals. And if you did listen to our agent Sonia episode, she came from exactly one of those families, those Jewish intellectual families that fled. And in fact, her brother was one of those who returned at this time to help build the GDR. Um and another one of them was a man called Johannes R. Becker. He was an expressionist writer and communist. And he went he fled to Moscow during the war. Um, and while there, they sort of already started planning for what would happen to Germany after the war, you know. So he returned from Moscow with this vision for a new Germany, a socialist Germany. And he probably naively he didn't really think that the GDR would end up being a Soviet vassal state. He thought that because they had their own rich cultural history, they could build a place where it wouldn't be workers in one corner and the intelligentsia in the other. I think he had very romantic ideals about, you know, these sons of the soil rising up and it all being.
0: Yeah, um, he he looked back at the Weimar Republic and all the art that came out of that. And he thought it was intrinsically German and saw no reason why it wouldn't be part of, you know, why art you know couldn't thrive on yeah. socialist germany's future it must have been incredibly exciting weirdly even though Ooh. you know germany had been completely bombed out to go we're going to create this new state and it's gonna we're gonna think about the art and the culture they must have thought they were creating something amazing and that they had this sort of blank slate almost literally to uh to start a new country absolutely absolutely it's like, it's like sitting down with england uh, you know imagine if you just went okay the uh, 2012 Olympic opening ceremony. Let's create a country like that. Let's, you yeah. know, or the Brexit vote. Let's create a country like that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Which 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 way do you want to go, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And obviously, what we know now about Stalin and everything else wasn't, I mean, Becker himself later said that he was being quite willfully ignorant or, or, you know, ignoring the certain Stalinist policies because he wanted, he wanted to focus on Germany and, Right. Um, and, and I think he genuinely didn't believe that that, you know, that Soviet influence would stay for as long as it did. Right. So um, he had perhaps a slightly more romantic view of what could be achieved by this new socialist state. And initially, the Soviet administration, they were a bit wary of him because of his obsession with Germany's cultural history and, and the culture's place in a socialist society.
0: Right. So because, yes, com- ruling communist parties, you know, mm. they sort of tend to favour... Rather, sort of brutalist socialist realism, don't they? The, the portrayal of the triumph of the working man over capitalism, that sort of thing. It's not, it's not subtle, is it?
1: Absolutely, because you've got contemporaries to to Becker, people like Friedrich Wolf, who was a he was a military surgeon on the World War One battlefield, became a pacifist and a card carrying Bolshevik, and he was a poet, but he called for. Poetry in the GDR to be fit for the modern age without sentiment or ambiguity.
0: Oh no, you see, you've got to have ambiguity in your poetry. Angela. I did. I did A level English. I know about. <laughs> you've got to have ambiguity. It's got. Yeah. it's got a, It's got to mean more. Mean more than what it says, isn't it? Yeah. Otherwise, a, what? A space, what? Basic. That's basic.
1: What a student's going to have to write about if it's yeah. not ambiguous? You're right. He was also actually, as a little aside, uh, Wolf was also a leading proponent of newsism. So oh. we know a podcast about that. Oh, don't very we? good. Yeah. Very good. Go back yeah. and do it. Um, but he believed so he came from the angle of believing that
0: art was a weapon that could yeah, be used. That's that's very true, Angela. I, I bumped I dropped a painting on my head when I was putting it out the other day.
1: <laughs> oh <laughs> bang, dear. bang.
0: That's bang. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wish jokes. Yeah, <laughs> no, art is a weapon. So
1: so the Soviets did support artists in that post-war period back in Germany. And in fact, in 1948, when obviously Germany was still under rationing at that time. And artists were given the same top level ration vouchers as key workers were. That's
0: outrageous. That didn't happen in yeah. COVID. Where no, it didn't. Where, where where we weren't key workers. No one was applauding us. No, where because were podcasters being applauded. Because comedian's not a proper job,
1: John. It's something a policeman accuses you of being. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> so <laughs> that hasn't happened to
0: you, hasn't it? They go, yeah. What do you do then? I'm a comedian. Oh the yeah, call the
1: other one. <laughs> yeah. Oh
0: dear. <laughs>
1: So, so anyway, Becker, the sort of slightly more romantic views of art and, and how it's going to be part of the GDR, he founded something which he started working on when he was still in Moscow called the Kulturbund, which is the Cultural Association of the German Democratic Republic. So it was dedicated to the renewal of this German culture, bringing back all this stuff that had been lost during the war years. Right, been suppressed um, by the Nazis
0: sort of thing. And he wanted to bring out all the sort of traditional German culture.
1: Exactly. And in fact, so Aufbau was the GDR's official publisher, and that was tied with the culture bond. And the first thing that they did, this official state publisher, was start publishing the books that Hitler had been burning in the streets.
0: Wow. OK, so that's so that that's, was, that's, that's, that's a very much a, a reaction to the uh, barbarism of, of Hitler then, really, to go, we are the opposite of that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, so Becker himself, he actually died in 1958. So a lot of this stuff that he put in motion, he didn't really see come to fruition. But the Socialist Unity Party took his ideas and ran with them.
0: Right. Um, well, that's the, that's the problem when you die and other people t- take over your big idea. It, it it changes them a bit, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, ask Karl Marx. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Am I right? So, Is this on? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, eh? So in 1959, so a year after Becker's died, and we're sort of 10 years into the East German state at this point. So they've done some rebu- post-war rebuilding, um, no longer rationing and things. Right. They have had a um, an uprising in 1953, which was quite brutally suppressed yes. by the Soviet forces. Soviet tanks came in. So mm-hmm. that sort of kept the citizens in line after that. I thought we better not do that again. So in 1959, there's a conference in a place called Bitterfeld in Saxony, and this initiative arises out of that called Der Bitterfeldweg, which means the Bitterfeld Path. And it decides it wants to really work on closing this gap between the intellectuals and the writers and the farmers and the workers of the GDR. So a lot of people who set up the GDR were these intelligent intelligentsia, these intellectuals. But they were obviously, you know, it was all about the working classes and they wanted to somehow close that gap between right.
0: them. The embarrassing gap at Labour Party That embarrassing
1: ETS. gap, exactly. <laughs> So they did this by creating what they called circles of writing workers. Okay. So in every branch of industry, factories, workplaces, you would have these writers in residence who would work with the workers. So, John, if you'd been born in the GDR, that's 100% what you would have been doing. I would have been there, like, putting beans in a can or something. Oh, don't
0: be ridiculous. And you would have been uh, in the room no, making you me have, read
1: bloody poetry after you would,
0: work. You, you'd you never been as high up as putting beans in cans. <laughs> I'd have you, I'd have you way down below that, sweeping the old cans off the floor for stuff. Uh, No, this, I mean, this is interesting, actually, because my uh, Labour Party, my old Labour Party badge that I always used to wear on my denim jacket when I was a young, angry man, it had a a shovel crossed with a quill. And I always liked the idea that I was going to be a writer, and I was a writer, and I was a socialist writer, and this was sort of fitted my sort of image of myself. Um, But of course, you know, any... Writer worth their salt doesn't follow a uh, a dogma, you know, or a, or yeah. a, a, a one philosophy. They question, and they the the point of writing is to be uh to be provocative and ask difficult questions. That's the last thing that a totalitarian state wants. But we we're, we're going to come yeah, on to
1: we'll, that. We'll, yeah, we'll definitely yeah, yeah. come on to that. So these writing circles were created um, in all workplaces, and in fact, even by the time the wall came down in 1989, there were still 300 of them in operation across East Germany. So they were, you know, popular things. Um, Now, when I say that they had writing circles for every industry, that includes the secret police. Yes. Um, We have talked about the Stasi before.
0: Yeah, here we go. Read Stasi Land, says says Angela.
1: (laughs) Yes, my regular plug to Read Stasi Land by... And a funder. Um, yeah. Brilliant book. Do read it.
0: What is that uh, Stasi short for? I don't want to German shit. Yeah, then. you
1: just want to make me speak German all the time, do The Ministerium for Staatssicherheit, which means it's really good. The, Your German thank is very you. impressive. <laughs> um, it's the Ministry for State Security, is what it stands for, Stasi for short. Um, and they're known as the Shield and Sword of the Party. They're the East German okay. state police. Ooh, Secret ooh, police, rather. Okay. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting with the Stasi because. In other Soviet states in the Eastern Bloc, their secret police tended to peak in the 1950s and then slow down in numbers. Right. But Stasi did the opposite. It just kept growing and growing in this increasingly paranoid state. I mean, seriously, yeah. read Stasi Land. You'll learn yeah, more. Yeah. We'll come onto it a bit more later. Now, within the Stasi itself, which was a huge organisation, and I think in the 50s, it had about 20,000 um, members, yes. and that grew... Um, but you had this section of it, this sort of um, specialist wing, this paramilitary wing of the secret police called the Felix Dzerzhinsky Guards Regiment, which was named after the Bolshevik Revolutionary. I was
0: about to say that, obviously, named yeah, after of the Bolshevik were, Revolutionary. Mate. Yeah, I obviously. Made, you know all of them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, these were the double hard bastards of the secret police. These were the, like I say, the paramilitary wing. So they were headquartered in a place called Adlershof, which was in an area of Berlin that was very secret. Didn't appear on any maps at the time, wow. and these guys were instrumental in suppressing that Berlin uprising that I talked about in 1953. They helped with physically building the Berlin Wall, so they were the sort of muscle of the secret police. Um, and at its height, that they had 11,000 personnel just in that regiment.
0: Okay, wow. So that's massive. Um, it's a massive expense, apart from anything else. But yeah, what a lot of manpower and what a lot of. And was it absolutely. was it was it men and women or was it all blokes?
1: I think it was all blokes, pretty much. Right. I mean, the Stasi was mainly men. I think it might have had some admin staff that were women and interrogators and things like that. But it was mostly men. And they used to call it the Minna Club, the Men's Club. Oh, OK. Stasi. That's a
0: clue, isn't it? That yeah, is isn't
1: it? <laughs> um, but th- this particular, this Guards Regiment, because it was a paramilitary wing, it was also a place where teenagers would come to do their national service. Right. So um, it was a place where the Stasi would then recruit people for special missions. So if they saw a teenager in the guards regiment that they thought would make a good spy or would um, that they could recruit them for things like the Tunnel Unit, which is the specialist unit that prevented underground escapes and things like that. Now, this specialist paramilitary wing of Stasi also had its own writing circle. Right. Yeah. May I introduce the Circle of Writing Czechists, they were called. Um, they were named after Cheka, who was the first. They were the first Soviet secret police force formed in 1917. Wow, that's and amazing this yeah. this, over,
0: this overlap between the state and culture. It's not something mm. we have in our society. The closest we get to politics and culture overlapping is Matt ha- Matt Hancock on I'm a celebrity.
1: <laughs> oh God, what an awful thought! <laughs> As we're recording this, I think the series has just started. I don't, yeah. I haven't watched it, but oh, I, yeah,
0: yeah, but the, yeah. So the idea of state sponsored. I suppose we do have state-sponsored culture in a sort of broadest sense of, you know, arts grants and stuff. But we don't go, yeah. this is the official line. No. We have the poet laureate. We have a poet laureate who goes, oh, it's the Jubilee or whatever, or God bless you. Yeah, page, I
1: think it, it, it's this idea of sort of in... I mean, the problem is as well, we don't have any state-owned manufacturer anymore. So <laughs> No, no, it's like, all let That's yeah. why they didn't
0: privatise the poet laureate, actually. And, uh, yeah, and the yeah. royal family as well. They could have sold that off and Elon Musk could have been king. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh God! Don't give him ideas. <laughs>
0: Sorry. Um... <I> so, <laughs> so this circle of writing Czechists. The, 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 yeah. The, the writing circle, the state writing circle.
1: Yeah, so they the earliest records of this particular group are from the 1960s. And when it was first set up, they basically were asking members of the Stasi to submit poems, short stories, song lyrics, anecdotes, anything that showed their love of the homeland, the optimism and joie de vivre, as well as friendship with the Soviet Union. And they wanted to intensify the hatred of the enemies of peace and socialism. It's
0: it's not Pamers, Angela, is it? It's not Pamers. Not- <laughs> they
1: weren't looking for Pamir's. But it was still, you know, it was still quite fluffy at this point. Stage. It was people who were writing quite, they, I think they had this old major who was in charge of it and they met quite sporadically at this point. And they um were, you know, this guy would write quite fluffy poetry. I think it wasn't, you know, they, and they, yeah, they would, yeah. and they would do things, they would produce things for special occasions. So if there was a special anniversary or something like yeah, that, they might yeah. produce a, um, you know, do some poetry readings or something yeah. like that.
0: Yeah, but then um, doesn't East Germany has a leadership change in that, doesn't it? Oh, Bricks sort of gets is pissing everyone off, including the Russians. So he gets retired due to ill health. Um, Yeah, and And then uh, we're
1: replaced by Eric Honecker, John
0: Honecker. Eric Eric Honecker. Do you want to say anything
1: to that? Do you? Uh, I'm tearing you up there.
0: You're you're tearing up my spitting image joke. That is the tragedy of the 1989 revolution is that my challenge Honecker joke never got done on spitting image. (laughs) The Whole sketch I wrote with challenge Honecker. No one, thinks, uh, no one thinks about the satirists, do they? No the one BMI thinks concept? about the
1: satirists.
0: <laughs> so no, correct. so
1: you're right. Yes. Yeah, so Walter Ulbricht, he's he'd been the leader since the formation of the GDR in the in 1949. Yeah. Um, but by this point, he's starting to piss people off, like you say, including the Russians. So he he retires, but really sort of forced out, yeah. um, and is replaced by Honecker in 1971. And Horikers' policies were slightly different. They they later called them consumer socialism. So on the surface, it was all about raising living standards, right? Good thing. Right. Um, it was about getting access to more housing. So that's when they were during this period, obviously building a lot of these sort of concrete blocks that we associate with um, uh, yeah, social housing. Yeah. Um, and but, but also, you know, making sure that people had enough goods, had enough food, and all of that stuff. However there was a sort of exchange. In reality, the exchange for these raised living standards was political loyalty. So while they seem to have more the extent for which they were being monitored for dissidents and being monitored for being good socialists or whatever increased at
0: this time. Yeah, really. So it's not sort of really it's basic corruption, isn't it, really? It's sort of loyalty yeah. and political advancement comes, you know, you you get that for toeing the party line, you get stuff and you get better housing and you get better jobs. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, was this a scheme that took off with, uh, uh, you know, great enthusiasm? How did the, uh, Yeah, was with a lot of readers? Eight. It, I was just jumping down. I was teeing you up. I was teeing you up I, for your next bit we, there. It's we normal... haven't
1: mentioned the readers yet. Oh, sorry. I was just I, no, no. I was just
0: teeing it up so you could go and it's yeah. yeah. No, it. so I you I, mean. Sorry. Ignore, I see all
1: what that, you Spike. Mean. ignore that. Sorry. Ignore so that. Just, I just, missed you what he just, was you just, doing then. You just. You just I was really all confused. That. No, no. I was confused because uh, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I, was, I see I what I you mean now. I was trying to up. I was confused
1: because we hadn't mentioned readers, and I wondered why
0: suddenly. But yeah, okay. Go straight into it. That's fine. No, no, no. You can ask me. So, so, so was this like? A big scheme? Is it coming at sort of, you know, full throttle or did they get, was it millions of well, people? Well, no, I involved?
1: mean, it, it was, it was not um, a scheme as such. It was just that, that was his policies. Right. But around this same time, the government had this concern that there was a relatively small number of readers of what they called high literature. And they right. saw that as a key problem. They call it um, Schöne Literatur, high literature. And right. they felt that, um, there was only like 35% of the adult population were reading Goethe and Pushkin and they thought only, that was insufficient. <laughs>
0: only 35% because... reading Goethe. I mean, I know. Could you imagine
1: like... 35% of British people having said, actually reading, I don't know, Shakespeare or...
0: Yeah. Dickens or something. Or, yeah. 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 I mean, if yeah. If only.
1: But they, they, they wanted it ideally within five years. This is... Um... <laughs> I mean, it seems like a lofty goal, but they wanted that to rise to 90% of people They're, reading um, Goethe.
0: In five years. Their, their five-year plan is we want most of the population reading Goethe in five years. It's like, guys, come on. We, so, they want to listen to rock and roll music and Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Oh, dear.
1: Yeah. So in 1973, I don't know why i find finding that so funny, but it is just this idea. It's, but it's that is, And I guess it's also that, idea of you know it's um closing that gap between the worker and the intelligence and all of that it's it's It's, it's lofty lofty ideals it's it's good ideas ideas, but
0: the thing is to go that the 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 art the worker must enjoy is the one we have decreed is worthy art well even though even you could do a lot worse than Goethe, of course but yeah why not allow it to spring up from the workers themselves because you can't have people reading what they want to john so in
1: 1973 they decreed that East German factories must have an on-site library. Right. And these libraries must have between 500 and 1,000 books in them and be staffed by a librarian. Okay, and good. the bigger the back, the factories, the bigger yeah. the libraries. So um, if, if you had between 5,000 and 10,000 employees, then it said you had to have between 18,000 and 30,000
0: books. That's, I mean, you know, it's a good um uh ideal it's it's yeah. not it's not it's the trouble is that it's all top down isn't it it's not they're probably saying what the books are and they're you know exactly. um they're sort of controlling it too much but the idea of factories should have libraries the idea of a civilized access one. To lib- yeah absolutely
1: yeah. but it's when the state decides what's in the libraries yeah. that you have yeah. the problem yeah so in terms of the amount of books being printed even they aimed they wanted a yearly increase of productivity of books of four to five percent a year being printed you like that don't you i like
0: this society
1: i i like that you think your books would be in that library that's
0: (laughs) (laughs) my books about socialism (laughs) so yeah so between 1950 and 89 the number of books printed each year and the proportion of those that were fiction more than tripled which is amazing really yeah um uh, so yes that that's there's probably people you know running this thing who work real idealists. And you, you know, it's hard to argue against the principle of that. But as yeah. we know, it's like like the, the theories of Karl Marx, it all gets slightly um, perverted in the practice.
1: Exactly. There's a lot of good theories that yeah, yeah just get waylaid with some bad ideas along the way. Yeah. In fact, there was um, an international study of reading literacy which was carried out after the war. Well, it's carried out just after the war came down. Oh, yeah. uh, but it found out that the average reading comprehension of East German 8th graders, which I don't know how old that is. It just said 8th graders in the book, it's but I don't about,
0: know. If it's like over here, it's probably about 12. 12 or um, something. But or said 12. their
1: reading comprehension was significantly higher than that of their West German contemporaries. So, that's it, you know, something yeah, just, was that's, 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 working. Yeah.
0: That's just how it all came down. That's, that's, yeah. yeah I've, got a bit, exactly. I've got a bit of wall, you know, Angela. I've got a bit of Berlin. Wall. Here we go. Here
1: we go. You have, yeah, my friend got You've got, got, it you've got a is bit that... of concrete that someone's told you is a bit of Berlin. Yeah, wall. it's a
0: genuine bit of Berlin wall that I've got here <laughs> in my house. So, all right, John, you'd yeah, be yeah, really we'll jealous see. of that, I should think.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but um, when we got married, Matt's cufflinks were made from bits of the Berlin wall. No, they weren't. There you go. No, they weren't. You're probably right. Just bits of concrete <laughs> with some spray paint on, but anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So,
0: so, so, but they were actively controlling and suppressing what their own writers could that, do. That's the they? sort yeah. of
1: irony of it: is that yeah. you know they had these high literacy, high level reading levels, but they were controlling and suppressing what their own writers were able to. And they, they put were, actually,
0: out. and if, you know, this is not a million miles from uh, George Orwell's 1984 and Newspeak, mm. but they were actually con- trying to control the actual language that was used. Oh. So, 1967, there was a a political dictionary was printed and it was updated every three to five years with state approved language and terminology to control the use of language um language that should be used in universities workplaces and all the areas of life to promote the socialist project so it wasn't just the berlin wall it was the anti-fascist barrier you know Um, absolutely you had to
1: everything that was published um and printed within the gdr had to meet these standards had to be using the right terminology and being positive about socialism, obviously. By the 70s, the Stasi were also getting more cunning in its methods because what had happened... So you might remember, I think it was in our Abel Archer episode um, where we talked about that there were various different peace accords between the East and West from the 70s onwards that were trying to sort of broker peace and bring an end to the Cold War. Right. And um, in 1975... They East Germany were one of the signatories on the Helsinki Accords, and part of that was um, a commitment to improving your human rights and the freedom of thought and expression. I see. So they, because they'd signed that treaty, they had to just be a little bit less obvious about their suppression of human rights. They had to be a bit more stealthy in what they were doing. A
0: bit more stealthy. A bit more stealthy. You see, unless you've your new language dictionary. Taken out, it's taken out adverbs, (laughs) so yeah. Um, so, uh, so the the head of the Stasi, Eric Milke, how do you say that? Milke, Milka, yeah. He proposed methods of psychological warfare. Yeah, I don't know why I'm gonna try to say this this word. I
1: love this, I love that Uh, you're reading this bit. If I notes. notes. there's no way you're gonna be able to say that word. (laughs) Why don't you tell us about
0: Eric Milke?
1: So, Eric (laughs) Milke, so. He was this he was a slightly was slightly sadistic, very sadistic, head of the Stasi. And he proposed these methods then of psychological warfare, which were a bit less obvious, perhaps. And they called they were called um zesetsung, which oh, was you a, skip
0: through that, so you've got to relish it.
1: No, Zasetsung, de zesetsung, <laughs> zesetsung, zesetsung, Um and it's a scientific term for a corrosive process. So it's literally, it was a process of wearing people down. And I um I visited again, I might have talked about it on the podcast before, but I really if you do go to Berlin and you're interested in this stuff, it's the the Stasi prison is well worth a visit. it's harrowing, yeah. but um, it, it's uh, in a sort of suburb of Berlin, um, East Berlin obviously, and uh, I, I remember that various different things they told us So the guide that showed us round when I went was an ex-prisoner. Wow. So um, she'd been interrogated in the interrogation rooms and things like that. And one of the examples that really stuck with me, and which is why I think I might have mentioned it before, is that they had as, in the prison where they would interrogate people, they had as many interrogation rooms as they had cells. God. So, totally. so you would be interrogated every day that you were being held. Every day you would be woken up in the morning, taken to interrogation and to, and, and you'd be taken in the middle of the night so you were sleep deprived and all of that wow. stuff. And what they would do, because in East Germany... They didn't have much choice in things. So, for example, there are probably about 10 different wallpapers you could buy for your house in East Germany. And so what they would do is they would send someone to your where you lived and find out what wallpaper you had in your living room.
0: Right.
1: And then they would wallpaper your interrogation room in the same wallpaper so that when you're sleep deprived and you're not with it and you're being interrogated for 16, 18 hours a day, you're being reminded of home. constantly.
0: That's insane. Yeah. You know, it's stuff like that. That's scary, really So that yeah. was
1: the, their methods were really cruel psych, and became really psychological.
0: God, that's terrifying. And they didn't just imprison dissidents, did they? If They had a suspicion yeah. that a writer or an artist was promoting subversive ideas. Uh, old Eric just instructed that they should have their reputation systematically discredited yeah. by spreading untrue <laughs> but credible and non-refutable rumours. That sort of fake news yeah. about, you know, uh, people they didn't mm. like. And then to destroy their confidence, Stasi would um, sort of systematically organise professional and social disappointments, which is uh, particularly cruel. I don't know how... Yeah. Cool you'd you know, have They'd, they'd promise some sitcom pilots and then... <laughs>
1: they just the, take then it away. Then their head of
0: comedy would change. And then, you know...
1: <laughs> well, the way then, it manifested was cruel. It was, you know, it's an example... If you say you were a teenager, a young teenager, and you were caught reading a, a pamphlet that was deemed unsocialist or whatever, you... you Because they kept, they were such meticulous record keepers, the stars. Yeah. And in fact, there's a statistic that's really interesting that during the 40 years of the German Democratic Republic. Yeah. More written records were kept during that 40 years than the rest of German history put together. That's right.
0: I remember you saying that. Yes, it's incredible. I mean, They were
1: meticulous administrators. So what they would do, you know, that might happen if you were 14, 15, you were found with something. You might then find out. Years later, you can't get into university and you can't get a job because they put something on your file and and it's because you were found with a leaflet 10 years ago.
0: Wow. So so it became a completely paranoid state by the 1980s, didn't it? As the population decreased, the secret police increased. And when the wall went up in 61, Stasi had about 20,000 members. By 1982, there were 81,000, not to. Not including the unofficial collaborators.
1: Yeah, the IMs, the Informella yeah. Mitarbeiters. And you're on a roll um, today. I am, I'm doing it, mate. Did you, just do a, <laughs> did you
0: just do a conversation class before this podcast? I
1: didn't. I haven't done one today, but I was in Hamburg at the weekend, so oh, I was speaking very a fair impressive. amount of German at the weekend. Oh, no
0: wonder, I can feel uh, it, I can feel it.
1: So, yeah, it well, it did become an increasingly paranoid state. And the Stasi itself, so they were um, housed in, in self-contained districts Right Stasi members and their families, so they would be managed by internal admin units they the Stasi officers would all play football in Stasi clubs and they went to Stasi hospitals and your children went to Stasi nurseries and schools what a nightmare which were a privilege you know, but it's also a sign of the lengths that the state are going to go to to have Friends.
0: complete control. Can you imagine being at a Stasi nursery? It's like, don't tell tales. Oh no, no, do tell tales. Do tell That's tales. Exactly, <laughs> exactly the whole point of the whole thing. <laughs> oh, so
1: so officers were would share offices to keep an eye on each other. And again, I think we've said this before. We both love the film Lives of Others. Yes. But what that Stasi officer did in that film couldn't really have happened or, or would have been very difficult to happen because there were so many checks and balances on everything that they did. Right. Stars the officers, you know, that they weren't, they weren't able to act alone to help someone right. out because somebody right. else would be watching them, you know. Okay.
0: So how do you, you can spy on what people do and what they read and you can spy on what they're up to and their associates, but how do you spy on what they're thinking and what they're feeling, Angela? Well, John.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's a good question in which to take a break. And also because I've just got a nip into your cellar to turn the tape over in the recording device. Dan, then I knew ah, it. Damn it. See, I'd be a terrible Stasi officer. I'm telling you what I'm doing. <laughs> Let's take a little break and a word from our informal collaborators and um, we'll be back shortly.
0: Welcome back to We Are History. We're in Germany again. Angela, I speak French. We right. Ne- we've never done anything set in France, have we? Have we done a single d- French uh, one? We, I we could did be, the I Siege could of be... Paris. Ah, oui, oui.
1: Mais oui, oui. <laughs> nous avons fait le <laughs> right, Siege okay,
0: okay. de Paris. Oui, je peux
1: parler aussi en français. Oui, oui, oui.
0: You're a... <laughs> you? Vous êtes trilingual. Trilingual. May we? May That's we? A, I sound like Del Boy. May, may we? So French, German, I suppose. So I speak a bit of French, but no German. My German's like famously bad. But my German's uh,
1: better than it sounds on this podcast. I tell you. Oh no, your German's very impressive.
0: I can tell you, just been a Hamburg. um My, uh, I think I told you this before, but my dad was a uh, book dealer. and He used to go around, and it was in a bookshop. And uh, this guy, he who was the bookseller, was talking to a German customer, and the German customer was going, oh. Uh, I'm from Hamburg. Have you ever been to Hamburg? And uh, but the the the, the bookseller said, yes, yes, I've been to Hamburg. And the the German went out and he turned to my dad and said, I didn't tell him it was in a bomber. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> different times, Angela. Different, different times. times
1: indeed. <laughs> different times. So,
0: but now we're in the 1980s, and we are. Uh, we're getting towards the end of the DDR. We, they don't know Ooh. it at the time, but it's uh, it's all going to come crashing down. The Cold War is starting to thaw around Europe. And so uh, communist leaders like Eric Honecker are getting nervous and even more paranoid. ours uh, was the Stasi leader, Eric Mielke. Mielke. Yes. yes. So the ideal, yeah, all those ideals of the formation of the GDR, that there'd be no distinction between the intelligentsia and the workers, it's a bit of a problem.
1: It's a problem because, um, as we sort of discussed in our satire boom episode, I guess, yes. they're a way of presenting ideas, literature, poetry, whatever, Um, So they're a concern. And from the 1970s onwards, I think it becomes more of a concern. Um, For example, there's a famous case where there's a uh, Wolf Biermann, who was a singer-songwriter, and he was expatriated from the GDR because he did a tour in the West in 1976. Right. And they eventually um, expatriated him. Yeah, kicked him out, and there's a big outcry. Oh, excuse me, I've got hiccups. Sorry. (laughs) Big outcry about that. I mean, in April 1980 the Stasi's own think tank, which was called the Chair for Scientific Communism, produced a 30-page paper on solutions to problems in the field of cultural politics. That doesn't sound worrying, does it?
0: That's a good read. That's great.
1: Oh, thrilling, thrilling. (laughs) I've read all 30 pages.
0: (laughs) I'm waiting for the film. (laughs) Um,
1: But it, it did claim that art and culture are especially prone to covert and subliminal assaults, as they called them, because their practitioners employed techniques such as allegories, metaphors, fables and alienation effects.
0: Yes, and that's insane, isn't it? So the whole point of art is to challenge the way you see things and to, you know, uh, make you think on various levels. So Mm. the idea that, oh, they're they're slipping in ideas by saying one thing that means another thing, it's insane. You just can't have have anything that sort of... um, uh, just toes a party line and is art. It's the opposite of yeah. art. You know, and like... they were
1: frightened of it because, you know, you can miss things if they're disguised by metaphor, you know, because obviously they would they would check everything that was being published. But if something's a metaphor or it's being presented in a way that isn't, you know, obvious, they were missing things. So there was an example in the book, and I, I haven't written it down, so I can't remember exactly, but read the book. There's an example of a poet who published a poem that made it through all the Channels, You know, and was published widely, but he'd started the letter of each line oh, yes, with something that right. spelled out a dissident message, you know, that's and things right. like that. So things did slip through and that's what frightened them, I think. But of yes. course, of course, while they were scared of all of this to outsiders they still like to rub their literary superiority into the west you know and in 1981 Honecker describes the gdr as a country of readers and the federal republic west germany as bestseller country it's a bit you know snotty. so yeah so while sort of suppressing their own writers and the and culture in their own country to other people they're showing off about how clever and well read and literary they are
0: yeah yeah that's you know? uh, yeah.
1: my I mean, um, my friend uh, Mandy, who is um, a uh, she's a person I do a German conversation for an hour every week yeah, um, on Skype. And uh, Mandy's the same age as me. And she grew up in Rostock in East Germany. Oh, yeah. And so she was about 12, 13, I think, when the war came down. But she can remember, you know, going to school in her young pioneers uniform and the wow. rest of it. And she said that her mum had a travel was allowed to travel once a year. I think it was to the West. I think her sister or something lived in the West. So she was given permission every now and then to travel to the West. And one day she brought Mandy back a, a kid's book, just a wow. you know little picture book or whatever. Right. Um, and had sort of said to Mandy, you must never, ever take this to school. But Mandy wow. did one day oh, no. take it to school. She didn't realise quite. And like her mum and dad were called in Shit. and it was a big terrifying, thing because she just brought this Western children's book into oh, school. That's
0: terrifying. Yeah. yeah absolutely the, the, a story that really struck me from reading about the um starzy poetry society i haven't read the book but i've read the reviews and i've read there's, there's, there's some things uh, around it the anna grit yeah. yeah, Gollin. colin yeah yeah and she was a student who wrote mm-hmm. some poems and mm-hmm. she uh Didn't even get these published or anything, but they were vaguely subversive, they decided. And she ended up going to prison for something Mm. that never got any published, just for what she thought and wrote down on paper. And she was like 23 or something, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, well, what happened when she was younger? I think she'd always been a bit of, she was a reader as a child, but she would read what she was told to. She was reading Marx and Johannes Becker and all the things that she was supposed to. But she was picked out at school because she'd asked questions. She'd asked, she was very inquisitive. So one of the questions she asked was, if the Russians are our friends, why don't they go to the same school as us? And why do they all live in barracks over there where we can't talk to them and things like that? You know, so she was like questioning teachers. Yeah. So teachers early on were like, oh, we've got one here who's got our own way of thinking. Yeah. And um, there was this this thing, they call it Fernve, which literally translated means um, uh, a, a longing for distance. A sort of pain for distance. So, what we itchy might feet. call itchy feet. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously, young people weren't allowed to travel. They were only allowed to travel within the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. And they would do that. They would hitchhike across the Eastern Bloc. And these kids that would go and hitchhike were known as trampers. And they instantly aroused suspicion
0: from the state. Because why would um, you want to leave the greatest nation on earth as the. Exactly. Theory,
1: exactly. There was one of the four groups that. Right. um Yeah.
0: And there's a uh, yes, so there's uh, the leather clad heavies, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The skinheads. Well, I don't think one were in there. And then the uh, no, olive no. green American bomber jackets. The punkers. Yeah. And the punkers. So if you yeah. were a
1: punker, a skinhead, a heavy, or a trumper, the state was on to you. So yeah. she was a, a trumper. She liked hitchhiking. She liked. She was inquisitive. And she liked, um, she liked
0: folk music as well. I seem to remember. She um, did. Yeah, yeah, she did. She, so. No her crime was just writing something that somebody got to look at and it was passed on. Well, well,
1: yes and no. It was. That was what they got her on in the end. I see, but she okay. was already in the they were looking for a reason to get because they I didn't see. trust her. So early on when she left school, she um when she was like 19, she was writing to bookshops asking for jobs because she she obviously she liked writing. She would right. write poems and stuff. And because she did that rather than wait to be allocated a job by the state, they thought she was suspicious and she was quite confident. She would talk to men in bars. So they said she was a loose woman and things. So when she was 19, that thing we were talking about earlier, the state just blocked her from getting the job that she wanted in a library. And I think when something like that happens, you're like, well, screw it. If they're going to be like that, I might as well be the person they think I am. So she was arrested for antisocial behavior at a music festival um, she was given a suspended sentence and then she was given a flat. They offered her a flat and a job if she agreed to become an informant. And so she agreed. So she'd get the flat and the job. Right. But then she immediately deliberately blew her own cover so that she couldn't be an informant. So the job never materialised. Um, and she used to call East Germany, she called it a country where you could fuck everyone and trust no one. She could have put it in a poem at least. Well, because she was a frustrated writer. She joined these writing circles, but they right. were basically starsy honey traps. So she was already on their radar. She was, yeah. but she hadn't done anything. You know, they just didn't trust her. And, um, and then what happened? This poem that you were talking about, she, it was just a poem that she'd handwritten in a notebook. And she gave and it, it was, to
0: a friend or something. Didn't she? she
1: gave it to a friend and the friend's father, who was a... And I am an informal collaborator, wow. which many people were. He told Stasi that his daughter had this collection of poems and it, they worked out that it was her who'd written it. And so they arrested her in 1980. And the poem was called... It was called um, Betonian, which means... It's like concretia is how they describe it in English. And it was just... It was about the socialist housing they all lived in. But it's, it's beautifully written. It's in the book and oh, it's wow. sort of written in two columns, like two oh, columns a... of tower right, right. blocks. And yeah, it's yeah. very and it's sort of this subliminal but she it, it's not you, you know it takes a few readings to get the interpretation of it it's not blatantly right. anti-state so they arrest her in 1980 and she's 3 months pregnant when they arrest her and they repeatedly interrogate her and ask her to interpret these poems
0: that's and eventually so weird, isn't she just it? you have to, yeah. critical. It's like that's how I felt in some of my tutorials at university. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I went in there <laughs> with a hangover, John, what did you think of Paradise Lost? Oh, I've got a headache, I drank too much. I no, was like, John, what, what does this section mean in Paradise Lost? I can't, I don't know. Oh, I'll go, say whatever go, you go. want me to oh, say. Oh, this wallpaper looks like the same as yeah. at home. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I think because she was pregnant and in that situation, she ended up just going, Yeah, fine, it's a takedown of the state, you know. Oh my god. Yeah. Um so she again is given a suspended sentence, but she later pissed them off in some other way and she ended up spending time in prison when her son was quite small. You know, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, to to be fair,
0: we've all written poetry in our teens that probably should have got us locked up. Well, there is that. (laughs) There (laughs) um, is that. Because you were a little bit late getting on the Zoom, Mm. Angela, I wrote a socialist poem. Have you? I'd love to hear it. show. show. Just to show that it can be done. You can do high art that is socialist as well. (laughs) Because... We're supposed to be recording this at seven. She's like, hang on, I've got to update Zoom and I'm bloody, hang on, I've got to get my notes. So here we go. This is a socialist poem by me, John O'Farrell. With Liz trusted our government's head, the whole country went into the red. Her actions weren't lawful. She was so naffled and awful that the Queen took one look and dropped dead. (laughs) Now that is culture. That is high art. I mean, I know we don't live in a in a
1: surveillance state, John, but I'm pretty sure that could still get you beheaded.
0: Oh no! <laughs> oh, maybe. We should, well, maybe I'll get in trouble now. I'm worried.
1: We'll yeah. see. Well, it's been it's been fun doing this podcast, yeah, John. that's I all I'll John, say. John was it's never seen
0: again after he wrote his subversive limerick. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but, so, but some so of anyway. the poems, that, some of the poems that these young people wrote, were it wasn't all Shakespeare. There's one that went. Uh, uh, describes conducting precise research to accurately filed matter information to the comrades, and it's like, <laughs> oh, this is great stuff. It's like <laughs> talk about filing efficiently. Is his poem?
1: Oh yeah, that's from the Czechist. yeah, from yeah, the Yeah, exactly. Czechist. Yeah,
0: yeah. But yeah. yes, uh, and uh, yes, but the Stasi they were sort of um, could constantly um, increasing their surveillance, weren't they? All the way. They up, were. The so there
1: 80s. was um, a party conference in April nineteen eighty one. And Milka, the Stasi head, he said that who is who was the question every Stasi spy had to ask themselves on a daily basis, which is quite a philosophical sort of question, really. I, I, would, have so what whom. They,
0: I would have said whom to him, but that probably who, wouldn't have gone Well, I think that's a translator's yeah. error there.
1: There um, is ist Or something like that, which
0: Deutsch. Um, yeah, every citizen, and not just those suspected of distant activity, had to be ooh. watched and examined and 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 they were placed into four categories, weren't they? There were probably, four categories. You can't really remember what those are, Angela, I don't. There's
1: category one was enemies of the state with a hostile negative attitude to the party. So that's pretty blatant. That's yep. you know, your obvious dissidents. Category two Bit more wishy-washy. Those who could become enemies of the state if subjected to hostile, negative
0: influence. I
1: mean, that right. literally hate pretty much anyone. That would any be that.
0: Yeah. Be like, oh, very easily influenced. Not not particularly rebellious, but stupid that's, enough to be influenced. That's the. Worst that's the one
1: where your think. mum would call you easily led astray. Yeah, He's easily yeah. led astray. Um, <laughs> category three: those with wavering positions in relation to the ruling party who are prone to being seized on and used by the enemy. Right. And then category four those that the state could trust and rely on. Ooh. And there was pretty much no one in Category. Oh, really? <laughs> or, Not even Hanukkah? Or, or a high proportion of the population yeah. were in one to three, and actually a high proportion of the Stasi
0: themselves yeah. were they knew yeah. were in one
1: to three.
0: If everyone's a potential enemy, then who's watching the Watchers? This is, uh, this exactly. is the problem, isn't it? yeah.
1: The other problem they have now, we're into the... We're in the 70s and 80s, this generation of Stasi men... Yep. Didn't really meet the working class criteria of the original Stasi, who yep. their fathers had been working class, their fathers had come through the war, um, you know, and were men of the soil or whatever. Yeah. Now you've got, we're on to, because it's sort of two generations really in East Germany, and you now got yeah. these. Second generation, who most of them were children of Starzy men. Yep. And they'd been to, like we talked before, they'd been to these special schools. They'd lived in these designated areas. They didn't have a lot to do with toil and struggle.
0: It's the eternal struggle. This is the eternal problem, Angela. It's like when right? I moved my Labour Party meetings onto the estate. It's like, well, maybe if we had the meetings in the, in the estate hall, no, still they didn't come. It was like, like it's like, we're oh, damn, we're all social workers and teachers and bloody comedy writers. Yeah, exactly. It's the same. same, I'm glad to know it's the same in in these so-called socialist (laughs) organisations, unlike my old Labour (laughs) party.
1: So what they needed to do, they felt that in this second generation uh, of East Germans, they needed to stoke these socialist ideas in them. These Stasi men who hadn't been labourers, they hadn't seen what the first generation had seen. They hadn't been through what they'd been through. So it was decided within the stasi in spring of 1982 that this sort of quite informal sporadic star um writing circle that they had needed to be professionalized a bit they needed to up their game and for these two reasons the the hope that this socialist realist poetry would fire up the socialist hearts of these younger stasi men who hadn't quite got the working man credentials and also it'd be quite a handy way to monitor what these stasi men were really thinking what was concerning them Right, that's, that's, so I had sort of these two reasons for that Yeah, happening.
0: They're actually contradictory, of course. You know, it's like we all create great art and it'll be a good way to find out if they're uh, yeah. at all subversive in what they write, which is sort of like the worst sort of starting point you can have. So they put they yeah. they put out feelers, didn't they, to uh, Berger. What was his uh, prize-winning <laughs> poet? <laughs> Uwe. Uwe Berger. Uwe who was a oh. prize-winning poet in East Germany. And weirdly... He was not a party member. What was the thinking behind that?
1: Well, it seemed a bit
0: of a strange hiring
1: at first um, because he wasn't a party member. But he did instil in this group, this writing group, this dogma. um, And he said that the poetry they produced had to rouse emotion and boost the hunger for victory in class warfare.
0: Right. So the poems they were producing now, they were less frivolous. And romantic, because there were people had just written love poems, hadn't they? And things, have yeah, been things but like, like
1: we said earlier on, they're a bit fluffier, but they were still I, with, social the search, poems, but... with the
0: searchlights in the sky. I write out, I love you, and stuff like that, it's yeah, like, exactly. Uh, uh yeah, Altman quotes uh, one of the circle members as saying, Poetry was the sound of a little bird singing, but Berger didn't want to hear bird song, he wanted every poem to sound like the Internationale.
1: Yeah. Yes. So although he wasn't a party member, he seemed to be towing the party line pretty uh, yeah. pretty strictly. Um so from spring nineteen eighty two until the winter of nineteen eighty nine after the war comes down, these this poets writing circle, they convened once every four weeks in the culture house inside the premises of the Felix Jzinski Guards Regiment at Adlershof, this Stasi paramilitary wing yes. in this secret not district in Berlin, yep. not on the yep. maps. Yeah. During this Period. This seven-year period, they produced um two anthologies. Uh, one of them, Philip Altman, who wrote the book, got a copy of, which was called "Wir über uns," which means "We about us." So, us writing about ourselves, basically. We about which was published us. Published in
0: 1984. It's not even a very good yeah. title, is it? We about us. I we mean, about us. A, it's not even a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, it so should, this... I mean, it's a
1: bad translation. I think it should be "us I about know. ourselves." Us, yeah. über um, okay. uns, yeah. Okay,
0: but this. Uh, how do you say U- "Uwe Berger"? Uver. Uva Burger, like Hoover without an H. Uh, okay, Uwe. Uwe Burger. <laughs> <laughs> um, I must have told you about my mate doing his German uh, o level when I was at school. He did no work for two years, and he then he had to do a talk in his German oral. So mm. he learnt this speech that was "Maidenhead ist ein großer stat. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he would go around reciting it. He go. Maidenhead East Irongrocer stat it get fifty thousand iron and, <laughs> and and Grocer's Modernus Friture Centrum, <laughs> and uh, he just learned the speech off by heart. And they turned over one of the three cards. They turned over. Maidenhead. He took a one in three chance that Maidenhead would come up. The other two, he knew nothing. They turned over the card. It said Maidenhead, and he went, "I oh, gone completely blank." And he <laughs> <laughs> so he got he got unclassified, but it was, oh, it was but he said it in the way that the the craze would say, "We're gonna break your legs, my gross stat
1: so stat. <laughs> when I did my german g c s e oral I yeah. remember having to say um one, uh, one of the things I had to say that I'd hurt my foot and how I'd done it right, and I could say I'd hurt my foot and then when it came to saying how I'd done it, my mind just went blank, and like most people were saying things like I was playing football or I over, yeah, like, yeah. you know or and I, the only thing I could think of to say was I said, Ich habe my foot in ein Schrank geschlossen, which means I cut I shut my foot in a cupboard. Oh that's all right. As as <laughs> I it, mean, makes woman, sense. it made sense. And but I could see the woman just trying not to laugh when I, I sort of said it and oh. went oh, I don't know why I've said that, but it's out there now.
0: <laughs> but I've got yeah, an A, it. so
1: you know, it's fine. Yeah.
0: Um But yes, yeah, yeah. so where we I've got lost now talking about Uberberg. yeah, he was not everything he seemed to be, was he?
1: No, so by all accounts he was a bit of a loner. Um, right. lived a bit of a monk-like existence. He collected rocks, so and uh, he might not have been a party member, but from about 1969 he'd been a prolific Stasi informer, one of these informella mitarbeiters, right. of which there were many. Um, Altman got hold of his files. He had a really shit code name because his code name was just Uwe, which okay, was his name.
0: A giveaway. My code name is John. John yeah, exactly.
1: Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, these files contain six volumes of reports, each of which held approximately 350 pages. And they dated back to November 1969.
0: Right. And so he was one of the one of the most productive informants on East Germany's literary scene. He was. He yeah. would
1: read his friends' unpublished manuscripts and then report on their political leanings or just report if you thought they were being a bit senile. He basically okay. would just, just do reviews and send
0: them to the stars. Well, that's the thing I thought um, about all this. There was a vague sense that writers are quite jealous of other writers. And so mm. when this guy who seemed like he might not have been a brilliant poet was sort of in mm. charge of all the poetry, uh, he's going to put down people who are better than him or he's going to report people he was jealous of. It's very mm. open to abuse, isn't it? This sort of
1: poet. Absolutely. So this is all before he was doing the... Yeah. The writing circle. Yeah. Um, but he was—he would inform Stasi which of his literary colleagues were suspected of having an affair, uh, which ones told jokes, um, which ah. Western TV programmes they let their children watch. Like one of them let his child watch a Tarzan film, so he grasped him up for that.
0: Blimey. You know. So, yeah, you do wonder the reason he wasn't a party member was because it made him less obvious as an informer, perhaps. Possibly. Yeah, yeah,
1: possibly. Um, and these reports get more and more detailed. And he was really, it seems like he was really relishing it because he eventually starts referring to himself in the third person. It's like he's writing these small dramas with wow. himself in the lead. You know, like Uwe Berger said, Uwe Berger rejected this.
0: John O'Farrell Just, would never do that.
1: No, nor would Angela no. Barnes. <laughs> no.
0: No. no, he described one writer, I remember, is, uh, with surrealist tendencies as having... Uh, fascistoid fondness for intoxication and magic it's like it was,
1: it was so weird. and it was so much opinion though rather than fact as well yeah. and it was ironic because he would he would call these writers out calling them fascists like this one yeah. but then at the same time he was denouncing other writers who were suggesting that they were fascists in East Germany okay so right. it's like, well, are they fascists or aren't you know? Yeah. <laughs> There's this female singer songwriter that he disapproved of. You know, we said earlier what they would do is discredit people. Yeah, that kind of way of and he would he just suggested discrediting her by publishing a review of her work, calling it tampon poetry.
0: That's uh, that's. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like uh, uh a put down for uh for women's culture like chick chick lit or chick you know, lit all you know, that, or, yeah, you know it's just like it's frivolous. Oh that's uh, my yeah. my daughter will be oh. interested in that. I've got to tell Lily yeah. about that, she'll love that. Um yeah. so uh uh Uva died in twenty fourteen. Uh so um Alterman wasn't able to interview him, was he? But no, he no. self published memoirs soon after the reunification and didn't mention any of this, did it?
1: No, it mentioned, he did say that he collaborated, but he made it sound like his collaboration was a bit of a tiresome chore that he tried to get out of, you know, rather than yeah. some, the actual reports themselves suggest that he, you know, he did it a lot and quite enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway, he oversaw this group of writing checkists and there's a lot more about them themselves in the book, like you should yes. definitely read it and find out more about them. Um, they were yes. a bit of a mixed bag talent wise, I think. Yes, certainly. yes,
0: yes. Teenager, uh, Alexa Ruka was very promising, but Berger kept an eye Alexander on Alexander Ruica.
1: Oh, teenager, <laughs> <did that> purpose.
0: <laughs> teenager Alexander Ruica, uh, Berger <laughs> kept an eye on him, saying, uh, he had a problem with power under socialism. On subjects like collectivism, life in the army and revolution, he reported, the young poet was hard to pin down. He was openly in favour, but subliminally against. Like, how I mean, can for, you tell I him? I mean, It's so subjective. Yeah, there was, so one, subjective. That, there was one younger uh, uh, poet that I read, which went, um, Want you to be mine, just mine, and hope never to be nationalised or collectivized it's like whoa you mustn't say that you've got to be in favor of national your love should want to be collectivized and nationalized you know
1: absolutely well there was one that i really like the so again we did an episode about able archer in 1983 which if you haven't listened to that episode please do but it's about a nuclear near miss yes um and and this is at a time where um the pershing 2 missiles had been um stationed in west germany so you had nuclear missiles basically pointing at East Berlin. Yeah. And it was all a bit tense and a bit scary, you know, but the the leadership were very much playing down that fear and they were ignoring the fact that there were youth peace movements and they were trying to go, nothing to see here, don't worry about it, yeah. you know. And um, a poet in the group, uh, Gerd Knauer, he writes a poem called The Bang, um, yes, and I won't right read it out. It's quite, you know, it's quite. But this poem goes on for pages and pages. And John, Odysseus John, turns yeah. up, and then at one point Karl Marx turns up in this poem, and yeah. uh, and it's really it's about a post-apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, the, the the nuclear bomb goes off. It's very graphic, lots of detail. In fact, when he finished reading it to the Circle, he said there was a moment of silence and an ashen-faced kitchen worker who joined the group for the first time that day he had to rush to the toilet to be sick. Oh,
0: my God. So, so I, I like to get you know, a reaction from my writing. But yeah. it ends, doesn't it, with Karl Marx yeah. tur- turning to Odysseus and yeah. saying, they're doing it because of me, but they put their faith in the wrong place.
1: Yeah, and I can't see there'd be any issue with a junior Stasi officer expressing his feelings about Karl Marx like that. Can you?
0: I just love I just love Karl Marx being in a poem with Odysseus and Hegel <laughs> and Kant and Plato. It's like it's mate mad. mate the you've got mad. too many characters in this. You need to just,
1: <laughs> just read it in a bit. It's like, I know your you're no, it's like
0: it's like your notes for the first draft of your podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know what you mean, John. I don't know um, what you mean. Yeah. I've got it down to eleven pages, haven't I? Come That's on, it's very good. It's very good. No, yeah,
0: um, <laughs> yeah. No, so the state was really trying to avert everyone's gaze from what was happening across the rest of Europe, and, and including yeah. Russia with Glasnost and openness and Perestroika reconstruction in the yeah. very late eighties. So uh, Uwe Bergen was—he uh, was reporting on everything they wrote.
1: Absolutely. And right up till the end, the last anthology from the Circle was supposed to be published in 1990. So after the war came down, they were still meeting. So there was a Stasi printing permission slip that was issued because I think people think the war came down and that was it. But obviously, the Stasi was still there until January 1990 when their buildings were stormed and their reunification happened later. So, um, yeah, they had a, a Stasi printing slip was issued on the 31st of December, 1989, almost seven weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall. <laughs> but, but the booklet, it never made it to the printers. Oh. Um, and in the final manuscripts, there was a dedication to the 40th anniversary of the foundation of the GDR um, and, the, and the Stasi, and that's been crossed out in
0: the manuscript. Three months after the wall came down, Berger was told that his contract was going to expire the following month. Yeah. That was it. There was no use for him after that.
1: No. Well, there was no Stasi pretty much no, after that. No. So, um,
0: okay. Not even the poetry bit. Can we keep the poetry bit? Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It, no, it's
1: all gone. No, you're done. You're done. Um, Berger eventually died in February 2014. And at some point in, in Germany, they tried to launch a poetry prize in his name. They set up a literature festival um in Berlin's Köpenick district but obviously a lot of Berger's former colleagues and yeah. contemporaries, because people might not have known, you know, he was known yeah. as a poet. Yeah. Just um, they sort of came forward and went, I don't think that's appropriate, actually. <laughs> no, to, um, absolutely. What I he mean, did. And his, uh, the prize was renamed in the end.
0: Well, quite, from what I read uh, around this subject, he was not a great poet anyway. He was just like no. um, somebody who was, you know, uh, muscled his way in there and sort of managed to control poetry. And you well, to...
1: Was it they say if, if you can't, those who can't teach. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. <laughs> but that's I'm not saying was, that, by the way. St- so, they had soldiers as well uh, infiltrate Literary soldiers Writing poetry So that's a, mm. uh, Imagine squad is Turning up in The Bloomsbury group That would be, <laughs> be a, so, Well I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure That does ha- I'm pretty sure There are the sort of Writing poets.
1: groups in the yeah. army Yeah I'm you've sure There are poet. writing groups In the army And things like that I'm sure there are mm. um, But it was just It was more the I think it was less Than getting together To write poetry More the fact that The poetry was monitored In the way that it was
0: Name um, rank Name rank ISBN number yeah, stick exactly. that fountain pen down, lad. We assemble it in twenty seconds. Come on, <laughs> faster, faster! What if inspiration strikes and you don't have a pen ready, lad? Come on, it was stuck. It was not gonna. It wouldn't fly in the British Army, I don't think. <laughs> I I don't know.
1: I don't know. Like you say, there's war poets. There's. War poets, I, I, yeah, don't, yeah. I don't think it's them writing poetry. That's the. Um, but the thing about the, the unusual thing is that it's the monitoring of it. It's the fact that it was.
0: But the used thing, against them, but the thing we, the reason the war poets are so powerful is because they're talking about the futility of war, and they're not going. Exactly. We're going to beat the Bosch. That's fantastic. They're exactly. saying how crazy this is. Exactly. Uh, it, I mean, on this wider, we're sort of done now. But the wider principle yeah. of propaganda and art uh, is a fascinating one because if you think about two thousand years, or maybe a thousand years of Christian painting, architecture, sculpture. There's some incredible, some of the greatest art you know since the Renaissance has been been created to suit the pope and the message of the catholic church and yet we sort of appreciate for what it is the great artistry of it but it's also trying to send across a very direct christian message it doesn't undermine christianity at any state does it Yeah, no, i mean propaganda
1: most propaganda takes the form of art of some description yeah. doesn't it be it poetry film books whatever yeah, the, that's the, what propaganda is
0: i suppose the art is to to, to be uh, amb- ambiguous. That's the, the mm. best art, is ambiguous. And to have a Stasi poetry was never going to be, eh, we might have found the answer, we might not. We don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's what they didn't want it to be, but some snuck through.
0: Yeah, exactly. With their clever use of metaphor and simile. Sneaking exactly. in with their underhand. I love the idea of spies going, they're being underhand. They're using, <laughs> they're, using they're, they're deceiving us. Well, it's a very interesting subject, Angela. Thank you for introducing oh, me Oh, I'm to glad the we got round to doing it and
1: then you let me yeah. you let me nerd on about East yeah. Germany again for well,
0: a bit. Well done, uh, Philip Alterman. I think he's uh, born in Germany himself, wasn't he, the author? I uh, think
1: he's, I I've, I can't remember exactly. There's another yeah. book of his that I've just bought that I haven't read yet, oh. which is um, Keeping Up With The Germans, A History of Anglo-German Encounters. Oh my God, okay. So well,
0: th- well, that's interesting. I think
1: he might be half English, half German. I'm not entirely right. sure, okay. but well, I think it sounds he sounds German
0: be. surname, isn't it? But um, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, thank you for your book, Philip. Uh, Very interesting. And thank you for uh, uh, introducing me to this bizarre backwater of the Cold War. You'll keep finding them, won't you?
1: I'll keep finding them. Don't worry, there's more to come. Berlin Zoo
0: Wars and (laughs) there's no end of quirky... Quirky I just love those at. little stories, though. Yeah, that's, no, and I, that's I think
1: I just find East Germany so fascinating because it's so geographically near and in near in time. You know, yeah. And it's so why I find to, it so fascinating.
0: So, so different to sort of modern capitalist society with all our yeah. cho- our choice yeah. and in many ways, not much choice. Well, that's yeah. right. on that bombshell. On that note, Joe. That philosophical.
1: Um, oh, I want to say a couple of little thank yous to a uh, few people who have written us some really nice reviews recently, John. Okay. So thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, if people can go onto Apple Podcasts and write nice reviews. We like it. And that. if you can tweet about us, like we really, our listeners are going up, which is nice, but we could always do with a few more. So, yeah. you know, if you enjoy the podcast, do tweet about it. All the while, well, that's if Twitter's still a thing by the time oh, this God, goes help out. Us. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'll put it on Facebook or, you know, in a, on, I don't know, a carrier pigeon or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't give me other social network platforms to deal I, I can't do it. I'm
0: going to try and get my head around that. I've got to. Oh my, no, cover my feel, I'm, I'm me... just
1: going to stick to Instagram. And
0: how long did it take us to build up this following? You're on, what I sixty thousand plus? That must have taken you like Something ten like that. years. Yeah, I'm on fifty thousand. That took me ten years. Yeah, it's, like, it's not fair.
1: It's <laughs> not fair, John. Yeah, we've we've got it. We're worse. the victims
0: here. We're the real these, victims. of par- poor, no, never mind Anna Grit and her poetry <laughs> in prison. We're the ones who suffered. We should shut up before we say anything else. In yeah, well, uh,
1: well you I'm should. To, I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going off
0: to read some some Rudyard Kipling and some British imperial poetry. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yeah, if, you, if you could give us a five-star review. I mean, ignore what John just said. <laughs> give, give us a five-star review. That would be and lovely. And, and do
0: tell your friends. Thanks really a lot, nice. guys. We'll see you thanks next Felicity. week. Oh, on... and
1: hopefully we'll what? do some more live ones, won't we, John, next year, oh, I reckon.
0: probably. probably, probably trying not to get sure. out of this podcast. You're making it drag on. We're I leaving. Know. We're going. Right. Bye-bye. Going.
1: Don't slam the door. Bye. Bye. Bye.